Welcome to the January 29th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, and the sermon is entitled, The True Gospel, delivered today by Pastor Clyde Moyer, Jr. What I'm going to do today is a little bit different in that I am talking to myself. <clears throat> I love sharing the gospel. I love sharing about the Lord with people, if they'll stop long enough to listen. I ran across some information this past week that very bluntly scared me about salvation, and I'll share that with you in a little bit. So what I'm going to be speaking to this morning is pretty much witnessing, preaching, teaching, witnessing, just sharing with each other about Christ. We all have people that we want to see come to the Lord. As Baptists, We believe in the priesthood of the believer, and that just simply means that all saved people are called to minister to everybody around them, not just the ones that have title or preacher. Only preachers and teachers are not who are supposed to be witnessing. All of us as born-again believers are priests in one way or the other, and that we're called to reach those around us for Christ. Now, our responsibility is not only to do that, but to do it as accurately as possible. Our responsibility is to share it. It's the hearer's responsibility to do something with that. It has been said that we are not to be lawyers in the way we share. We don't argue our case for Christ in order to win a point or win the argument with the people we're talking to, but we're to be reporters that offer the truth with grace and compassion, and then allow the hearer to make their own choice. That really does seem to be the method that Jesus used. I don't know why it surprises us when we think it might be good to follow Christ's example, but he was gentle in the way he shared it. The only people that he was not gentle with were the church rulers, the temple rulers, the people that were teaching things falsely and not preaching the right thing. Please take your Bibles, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians, first chapter, verses 23 and 24, which says, But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Paul has said many times in Scripture that he preaches Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and that's all he needs to do. These two verses in Corinthians pretty much lay out the job description of sharing the gospel for all of us as believers. We're to preach Christ crucified, raised from the dead, sitting now at the right hand of God, interceding for his own. Who are we, to, to, are we sent to? Who are we supposed to be sharing with? Well, clearly in the scripture it says that would be the Jews and the Greeks. What that does not mean is that we're only supposed to go to Israel and Greece. The Jews considered themselves the only group of God's people. Everybody else was considered a Greek or a Gentile. So we qualify. If you're not Jewish, you qualify as a Gentile. But the long and the short of that is what this verse is saying is preach to everybody every chance you get. Sadly, 
I think many of us have forgotten or ignored the warning from Jesus' brother James. And James didn't believe in the Lord until after the Lord was raised from the dead, as best we can tell. He, he was also the head of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. So he was a man that had great authority and his resume was impeccable in that he was Jesus' brother. Well, what was the warning James gave us? If you take your Bible and turn to the little small book of James, near the end of the New Testament, we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 1, which says, well, I'll give you a minute to get there. James chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now the word masters in that verse is specifically referring and pointed at pastors and evangelists and teachers, possibly deacons, because we stand before people. We're reading God's word and then telling them what we say it means. We will be judged more harshly because we're speaking for God. Specifically, we will be judged on whether we got it right and delivered it in the way that Christ would prefer. I feel sure we're all familiar with the children's game of whispering something to the first child in a row, and then they pass it to the next child and so on. I looked it up, by the way, and I couldn't, first I didn't know what to look up. It's called Chinese Whispers. And the hat got that name, I have no idea, but if you look up Chinese Whispers, this is what you'll find. In that game, the goal is to see if the story at the end of the line is the same as the story that started at the beginning of the line. All of us want to be quoted correctly. And if we're not quoted correctly, it can cause terrible misunderstandings, can ignite anger or cause hurt between family and friends. As awkward and unwanted as that is, that's not what James is talking about here. He's saying we're going to be judged more harshly if we wrongly inter interpret Scripture in our sharing of the gospel because if we preach it incorrectly or incompletely, someone may not get saved. We must get it right. We must be accurate. Now, being a former forest technician for nearly three decades, I spent a great deal of time in the woods uh, looking at property that I'd never really been on. <clears throat> if you've never been on a piece of property and there's no one there to guide you, what you have to do is find a way to navigate accurately back and forth across the property. I used a compass, a color infrared photograph, which is a transparent color photograph of a view of the piece of property from above, and a topographical map. If you've seen the green maps that have little brown lines all over them, most of the topo maps I use, each line, if you move from one to the other, with a 20-foot difference in elevation. So with the topo, you can see how high the elevation is where you are. With the color infrared, you can anticipate where stands are going to be. And with a compass, you can navigate it properly. You had to run cruise lines, a line over, a certain amount back, come back. It had to be perfectly parallel lines. I don't know if you've ever used a compass, but I remember one particular track that one direction in the line I was going was a mile and a half before I was going to turn around. 
If you get even a quarter of a percent off of an angle, just a quarter of a degree off using that compass, by the time you go a mile and a half, you're on somebody else's property. You might be lucky to be in the same county. Uh, you, you get just a tiny, tiny error. What's the point? The Bible is our compass to God. And we have to follow it precisely and share it scripturally, accurately, because we're sharing things that help people decide where they're going to spend eternity. That is a major point. Are we giving good directions? Are we being thorough enough that people who hear us share the gospel and understand the commitment they claim to be making? When you share the gospel and someone accepts Christ while you're praying with them or if they come forward, or have you given them the directions in order to actually get saved rather than just have an emotional experience? If we are wrong or incomplete in our sharing, people may go home thinking they have eternal security because they, quote, prayed the prayer, but maybe hadn't set their heart on it. I ran across an article, and this is what scared me this week, and I decided to bring this to you. This is an article that shared some amazingly startling facts and figures about what percentage of people that come forward in crusades, sit in churches, are estimated to be saved, not by some statistician, not by some pencil pusher somewhere in the corner that just likes to do math, but by very famous, well-known, respected, accurate pastors of the current time and of the past. In an article called, Can Church Members Go to Hell? Dr. Benny, who is the director of Moorhead Manor and editor of Issues of the Heart Journal, said the following. When I first became a Christian, I assumed that all church-going people were automatically qualified for fast track into heaven. It was a given. After becoming a church member, then a pastor, I realized I had to rethink the issue. Dr. Benny said, I have encountered many leaders who doubted their faith, others who could not clearly explain how they were saved, and even others who had positions of authority in the church who frankly, privately committed that they were lost. It was a job, not a calling. Now there will always be naysayers and conspiracy theorists about predictions with wild things that never amount to anything, but as I began to read the rest of the way through the article, I found that Dr. Benny had taken the time to find out what eight well-known and respected Christian leaders over the past decades thought about what percentage of church members were actually and genuinely saved and how many were counting on false assurance. I suspect as I give you the figures, you will be as stunned as I was. Dr. Rob Bell, president of the Fundamental Baptist Fellowship of America, estimated that 50% of the church people that he was aware of were lost. <clears throat> Dr. Bob Jones Sr., founder of Bob Jones University in the 1940s, also agreed 50% were lost. Dr. B.R. Lakin, and this is a man that I've had the privilege of listening to preach many times. Uh, in the 70s, he would show up at Thomas Road fairly often and preach. Wonderful expositor of the Bible. 
Dr. B.R. Lakin, a man who used to regularly be in Lynchburg, estimated in his thinking 75% of all church members were lost. Folks, this is not going to get better as I keep going. W.A. Criswell, the founder of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, which at one time was the largest Southern Baptist church in the world, said he would be surprised to see even 25% of his church members in heaven. Dr. Bob Gray, a longtime pastor of the prestigious Trinity Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, said that he thought 75% of the people in front of him were not saved. Billy Graham, I think that's a well-known name, suggested that he thought 85% were not saved. These are quotes. And finally, A.W. Tozer and Southern Baptist consultant Jim Elliff felt the number of church members that may not be saved could be as high as 90%. If any of this is true, we've got a problem. And likely, we're it. Quoting Dr. Benning again, he said, these are shocking figures to be sure, but not surprising. Many such lost people find their way into the roles of the church through evangelism methods that are less than thorough. The reason that so many think they're saved and actually may be lost is traceable directly to a misunderstanding of really what salvation is and what it means. Why would we think that any of these could be correct? I'm going to bring it home and really hurt our own feelings a little bit. This is from the past. A former pastor of Clifford thought that it would be a good idea to teach a class in a, from a small book entitled Witness, Take the Stand. It was designed to help us as church leaders know how to accurately share the gospel in a way that was accurate to people so that they could make a genuine decision on real figures and facts that the Lord gave us. The first exercise was we were to write down our testimony of how we got saved to the point that we could read it in two minutes or less. The point being, you're not going to hold people's attention very long. Years ago, they used to say an adult's attention span was about 20 minutes. But that was long before the soundbite generation came through. We generally listen a handful of seconds to most things to make a decision and move on forward. So he asked that we do that in the class and that we would write down, again, our, our testimony that would take us only two minutes to share. When he told us to do that, one of the people in the class raised their hand and said, what do you mean my personal testimony? Remember, this is not a classroom full of regular church members. These are the leaders of the church. He said, do you, uh, does it mean that when I joined the church? And the pastor said, well, it could be when you joined the church, but not necessarily. Pastor thought he'd taken care of the issue, but the gentleman said, well, do you mean when I was baptized? And the pastor, said, pastor again said, well, it's possible that you got saved when you were baptized, but not necessarily. Now, here's the scary part of the story. This was one of the major leaders of Clifford Baptist Church. 
It's long enough back that nobody will remember it. I certainly won't use any names. But what the pastor realized was if this church leader didn't even know enough about Scripture to know exactly how he got saved or if he was saved, this wasn't the class we needed to be holding. So what the pastor did was he canceled the class immediately, and for the next several weeks, he preached on the difference between church membership, baptism, and salvation. Only one of those gets you saved. Church members and baptism, that doesn't do anything. You can go in the water or a dry center and come out a wet one. It's not a problem. If church members made you saved, that'd be like saying if you lived at McDonald's, you were a Big Mac. It makes no sense. <laughs> Whatever the actual figures are, this is something that absolutely tells us there are a large number of people sitting in church pews every Sunday that's very frightening to me, may be counting on false assurance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed for his long-standing opposition to Hitler, is one of the greatest Christian heroes of the 20th century. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, published in 1937, he said this, and I quote, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. In other words, cheap grace is no grace at all. As Christians, I'm afraid that I and maybe many like me have assumed that the people coming forward to kneel at the front or talk to a pastor or pray understood that walking an aisle and praying a prayer don't do anything but add a few steps to your daily step count and you expel a little bit of air from your lungs unless you genuinely, genuinely mean it. We dare not continue to make this assumption. The salvation candidate needs to have enough understanding to realize that if their life doesn't change and they aren't the new creature that Christ described in 2 Corinthians 5.17, they didn't get it. They're not saved. Why am I so adamant about this? Because I'm talking about myself from both sides of the issue. From the time I was two weeks old, I was in church all the time. I don't remember being here two weeks old, but my mom's honest, and that's what she says she did. I didn't get genuinely turned on to Jesus to where I knew I was saved until I was 18 years old in the same church. Now, this church has always, in my memory, which is 66 to now, has always had preachers that preached the gospel accurately. They were all different, but they all preached the gospel. I sat through it and missed it. I knew the answers to the questions. Heck, I knew the questions. And I could answer it correctly. But something had not changed until I was 18. I rarely missed church. I belonged to the choir. I volunteered everywhere here at Clifford. But it was not until 18 that I got truly turned on to the Lord and something changed that has never gone back. I've been different from that point forward. Being at church constantly didn't save me. 
It just gave me a lot of time to take a nap. Being the son of faithful Christian parents didn't save me. My grandparents were Christians, and that didn't save me. Both sides. I tried to live by the golden rule. Well, let me make it short for you. Nobody ever can. And that didn't save me. It wasn't, I wasn't saved genuinely until I realized my sinfulness, my total helplessness to do any better on my own, and fell before the Lord in humility and gave up and said, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. Please come in and save me. Guess what? No problem. Immediately came in. Well, you're saying the prayer, the prayer of faith right there, that saved you. It saved me because I meant business. There's a member of this church that told me in a personal testimony privately that he prayed the prayer of salvation with six different evangelists over many years, and he still was the way he was before he prayed the prayer until one day he meant it. And then God came in, the light turned on. I want to share a single statement that I found online two weeks ago. If any of you are friends with me on Facebook, you will remember it when I read it because I posted it. This gave me an intense determination to improve my efforts to rightly divide the word so that no one gets a wrong turn from what I've told them. The man who made the statement's name is Arthur Walkington Pink. He was an English Bible teacher. He wasn't well known throughout his life, but he became one of the most influential evangelical authors in the second half of the 20th century. <clears throat> Here's the quote. The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present day evangelist. He announces a savior from hell rather than a savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have absolutely no desire to be delivered from their sin. Let me read it one more time. <clears throat> the nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present day evangelist. He announces a savior from hell rather than a savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire at all to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness, their sin. We're having too much fun with what we're doing. We still love those sins that we hang on to. Satan isn't strong enough to keep you in sin. Only you are. I have never sinned because Satan made me do it. I have only ever sinned because I chose it. And I chose it because I liked it. That's blatant and blunt honesty, but that's where she lays. The Bible study stoutly backs up <clears throat> the fact that there may be that many falsely, false people with false assumptions about their own salvation. Let me read a couple of them to you. These are the ones that you read through real quickly and usually don't go back. You don't want to sit here for a while. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Matthew 7.21 and 23 is even worse. 
Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter unto the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Sound kind of like church members that don't quite know the Lord, doesn't it? <clears throat> Matthew twenty-two fourteen says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Those people are many, and it sounds like they're people that we live with and work with in churches. The reason they were able to do that is simple. Jesus' name has power in it. Even if the name of Jesus is carried from point A to point B by a person who's not worthy to carry it, the power of Jesus is still in the name. If a person prays a prayer of faith and God heals them and the person that told them to do it is lost, has nothing to do with it. God is honoring the, his promise to answer that prayer, and he did it, even if the person that carried it is lost. I'll never forget one particular pastor that I met, <clears throat> and I asked him, well, what called you into ministry? He said, I thought it'd be a neat job to try. I said, excuse me? He had had a lot of different jobs, and he just thought this would be a nice job to try. It paid good, and there wasn't a whole lot you had to do is what he thought. I don't think the man was saved. At this point in the sermon, I think we've fairly well defined the issue, including who is most at fault for making assumptions about people's understanding. That would be me. Now we come to it. What is the true gospel? That needs to be shared. Romans 1, 3.23, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, <clears throat> but the gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And John 5, 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth them, and him that sent me hath everlasting life. It's simple, people. Actually, the sinner's prayer is structured very well. It's just that we've forgotten to totally emphasize the last point. You have to come to the point where you believe that Jesus is who he said he is. You can ask people everywhere, do you believe in Jesus? They say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Guess what? So does Satan. He's not going to heaven. Knowing the facts don't have anything to do with it unless you do something with those facts. So you have to believe Jesus is who he is. And you're going to trust him. You have to come to the point where you realize, I am sinful. There's nothing in me worth saving. But Jesus wants me anyway. So I'm repenting of these sins, and Lord, and I'm admitting to you <clears throat> that even though I'm saying I'm repenting, I don't have the power to do it. Come in by the Holy Spirit. Live in my heart. Change me. And then the last part of it is where we begin to walk with Christ. Folks, if you get all the way to the last point and your life doesn't change, you haven't recommitted it or committed it for the first time to belonging to Jesus 
as a bond slave. A bond slave means that I was sinful and Christ has forgiven me. And because he's forgiven me, I'm giving him myself for all eternity. If you think you have Jesus as Savior and do not have him as Lord, you're mistaken. If he is not your Lord, you do not have salvation. Well, what are some of the things we should look for or check ourselves for to decide if we really are genuinely saved? Do we enjoy having fellowship with Christ and his people? I heard a pastor say one time, I don't know why half the people I know want to be saved. They don't live like they're going to live in heaven. That's pretty blunt. Would you, people say, would you people say that you walk in the light or walk in darkness? If somebody asks a friend, what do you think about my life? Is there light in it or is there darkness in it? Be prepared for a true answer if you ask it. Do you admit and confess your sins? Are you, here's a bad one, are you obedient to God's word? Jesus teaches if you say you love me and don't do what I say, you're a liar. Look at the little book of 1 John. Does your life indicate that you love God instead of the world? Is your life characterized by doing what is right? Do people, when you go to do something, do they not worry about having a bad job? They expect you to do the right thing. Do you try to maintain a pure life? That one's a bad one, isn't it? We live in a world that is saturated by, everything is sold by sex. Uh, the strangest thing I ever ran across was in Faulkner's saw shop years ago, there was a big poster, three by five poster for Timberjack Skidders. Now that's a piece of machinery that's ugly as sin that you back up to a, a tree and drag it of the woods with, okay? Had a lady in a string bikini sitting in the seat. I worked in the woods for about 40 years. I never saw her. <laughs> the point is, is to attract your eye to the lustful picture and then you get mentally attached to the product behind it. That's what it is. Matthew 7, 20 says bluntly, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Returning to the dismally low predictions of these famous pastors as to how many are saved, I would suggest to you that as Christians, we redouble our efforts to get it right, to be careful, to be accurate, be patient. Don't go, God bless him, thank you for saving him now, have a good lunch. Spend the time with them they need. That may, it probably will entail us being willing to come along beside them, check on them occasionally, mentor them. But to the person who has had false assurance, my prayer is, is that these figures and what I've been saying will shock you enough to make you check. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who, like me, feels they haven't done a very good job of sharing the gospel. We can come forward and repent of that, and God can forgive us and give us the ability to do what we need to do the way he needs us to do it. Maybe you're here and realize that your life didn't change. You look back to when you think you got saved and you look at your life after that point and you don't see a whole lot of difference now than you were before you got saved. That's a bad one. There is only one reason there can be no difference. If there's literally no difference, nothing happened when you think you got saved. 
Now, I'm going to put a caveat in here just so you'll think. There is one little caveat, but please don't hang on to it. A born-again Christian, genuinely saved, can get off track in life and slide in the wrong direction. And if you look at their life while they're still slitted, slud, whatever the word is, off to the side, they're still in the problem, you go, well, that's a lost person. But it isn't. It's a backslid Christian. You can't judge by the vision of what you can see completely because a backslidden Christian looks almost exactly like a very moral lost person. They're, they're interchangeable if you're looking only at actions. The difference is that backslidden Christian will still have that ache inside to get back to God. They will be miserable when they fall into sin. They will, they will have a millisecond of whatever the sin is of, of enjoyment, and then they just can barely lift their head up. If sin doesn't bother you, you are really in a bad spot. Maybe you're here and think you're fine because you followed your heart's leading. I follow my heart, my heart would not leave me wrong. Wrong. But Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. The Bible teaches that our heart is desperately wicked by nature. Maybe there are people here this morning with hurts and fears that have little to do with salvation, but more to do with the trouble life brings even after we're saved. God's here for you too. What I want to tell you is my God can handle any problem you can think of. He can save you. He can heal you. He can fix you. He can give you wisdom. He can resolve issues. But there's one requirement. Even as a saved person, you have to give it to him to let him do it. If you pick it up again, it's back in your hands. I hope that whatever your need is this morning, you will consider coming to the front. Pray by yourself. Pray with somebody where you're standing. Talk to one of the pastors. But all I'm asking is, as we close with prayer, that you do whatever God has shown you that you need to do in your heart. And he will be faithful to meet you there. Father God, thank you for being here today. Thank you for allowing me to get through this sermon. Lord, it's not an easy one to preach. But Father, I ask that you would clarify in everyone's mind, in the sound of my voice, where they stand with you so they can do something about it. And Father, we invite you by the Holy Spirit to be here, to touch every heart, to solve every issue, whether it's someone listening in from a foreign country or someone sitting on the front pew. Father, I trust you to do that, and we give you all the praise and the glory. For Christ's name, amen. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.